Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There's no one better to tell you this story. My hair, the hairs on the back of my neck are already up because um, I've read James write about this in his Battle of Britain book, which for some reason has a load of other stuff in it. Um, um, his account of what happened to Dunkirk is truly extraordinary. And we are about to listen to him tell the story of what happened at Dunkirk. Is it a miracle? Let's find out. Welcome to the stage, James Holland. What I want you to do in the, in the next 60 minutes is try and pretend you don't know what happened in the war. You don't know what happened in 1945. You don't even know what happened in the summer of 1940. I want you to try and cast your minds back to late May 1940 and the total panic that is going on in Britain and on the continent of the Allies, on the Allied side of things. The kind of terrible thing has happened that should never have happened. It looks like the Germans have completely overrun France. The British Expeditionary Force has been defeated in battle. There's a desperate bid to try and get it back, but that decision hasn't been made on the morning of Sunday the 26th, which is where I'm going to start. I'm going to do this day by day, this incredible week. I'm going to take us up to Sunday the 2nd of June, 1940, from Sunday the 26th of May. And it is just the most incredible week. I was trying to think, was there a more incredible week in Britain's long history? And I'm really not sure because I think the tentacles of what could have gone wrong if this week had played out in a different way are just so enormous that, well, I'll leave you to think about that one. Sunday, the 26th of May. So in Whitehall, the first war cabinet meeting is at nine o'clock in the morning. The king, George VI, has announced a national day of prayer this day. Things are that bad. It's so bad that the only option is for everyone to pray incredibly hard to God to deliver them from this crisis. But the war cabinet, that's all well and good, but praying's not enough. So the first war cabinet, and this is five members. It is uh, Greenwood and Attlee of the Labour Party. It is Lord Halifax, the Foreign Secretary. It is Neville Chamberlain, the ex-Prime Minister, uh, who has resigned on the 9th of May, so just uh, uh, um, 17 days earlier. And of course, it is Winston Churchill, the new Prime Minister, who's only been in post 16 days, just a little over two weeks. He's brand new, and don't forget his reputation. His reputation is someone who hasn't got the greatest job who smokes too much, who drinks too much, who has made some catastrophic mistakes, is back the back, the wrong horse in a number of times, and is now Prime Minister at this absolute moment of crisis with their ally France, a world superpower, about to be crushed by the Nazi hordes. 
And first of all, they get a briefing from Sir Edward Spears, General Sir Edward Spears. He's been a liaison officer to the French. He's almost native in the First World War. He speaks it fluently. He's pa um, Churchill's man in Paris. And he reports back on what he sees. And he says it paints a very, very gloomy picture. The French are defeatist. Um, the politicians are, are, are all at sixes and sevens. No one can agree on anything. Uh, um, Blan General Blanchard's uh, northern armies are all over the place. They're being, you know, basically completely surrounded pretty much apart from the strip of the coastline. It's all looking pretty bad. And it's a very, very desperate situation. They're expecting Calais to fall that day. Um, he picks nothing but a very, very gloomy picture. They then um, discuss a note that has been prepared by the Chiefs of Staff. Now, the Chiefs of Staff are the head of the Air Force, of the Navy, and, of course, of the Army as well and the, the uh, um, chief of the Imperial General Staff as well. And this is British strategy in a certain eventuality. And it's one of the most unfortunate euphemisms of all, because what that really means is the, the, a certain eventuality is what happens if we're defeated. And the implication is, is what happens when we're defeated. What are we going to do about it? What can we expect? Well, we can expect the French to kind of turn over. Uh, we can potentially lose the French fleet. Uh, we can expect Italy to come into the war with the Italian Navy, which is substantially larger than the German Navy. So although Britain has the largest Navy in the world, it is now potentially up against the French Navy, the Italian Navy, and the German Navy. German Navy on its own, not much of a threat, but put all those together, sort of shifts the balance a little bit. The prediction on the parity of Air Force is that we've only got 491 Spitfires and Hurricanes on that particular day because they're already engaged over France, uh, the Spitfires and Hurricanes of Fighter Command, who are designed specifically to defend Great Britain. And against them are around 4,000 Luftwaffe planes. It doesn't matter that they've got that wrong, but that is what they're reporting in this report. And it suggests that they've got, you know, an overwhelming advantage of well over kind of 10 to 1 if it's 4,000 against 491 Spitfires and Hurricanes, give or take a little bit. So it's a very, very grim situation. At that point also, Halifax says, well, I've been talking to Senor Bastanini. And Bastanini is, Giuseppe Bastanini, is the Italian ambassador to Britain who has said, look, Edward Halifax, I can help you open corridors of talks to Mussolini and then from them, from Mussolini to, uh, to the Germans. And he announces that he's had these discussions. And Churchill immediately says, I wouldn't like anything, I wouldn't be entertaining anything that um, leads to a derogation of our own personal rights here in, in the UK. And it's kind of left there. It's just hanging. It's out there. Halifax has suggested that we sue for peace or start investigating the possibility of suing for peace. And Churchill has already gone, ba-boom, straight back. They then split up because it's time to go to Westminster Abbey, cut across from Downing Street, the cabinet room at Downing Street, do the little kind of drive over to Westminster Abbey, you know, less than a quarter of a mile away, go and join the king at the service for the National Day of Prayer. They then go and do that, hurry back for two o'clock, because at two o'clock is the next War Cabinet meeting, and that's when they're going to soon be meeting um, Paul Reynaud, who is the French Prime Minister, who's going to be coming over um, to talk to them. Now, what is going on in France at this time? Well, you can see from this map here, I hope you're getting it. So what's happening is you've got the French First Army here, out on a limb, ahead of the BEF. And the BEF are kind of roughly, kind of, there's a kind of lozenge-shaped perimeter. And what you've got is Army Group B coming through the low countries from Holland and Belgium, attacking from the kind of north 
uh, east and you've got Army Group A, which includes the panzers, those, those 10 panzer divisions of Army Group, Army Group A, thrusting in and pushing in towards them here. And the danger is that they're going to come in and meet behind the BEF before most of the BEF can get to Dunkirk. So what they've got to do is they've got to defend everything as long as they possibly can. That day, Calais does fall. Includes a whole brigade and an armoured regiment, which amounts to about 4,000 men in the bag. They also learn that, that Graveline has fallen, is about to fall, and a whole load of coastal French guns have been caught and captured, which are now being already used by the Germans and turned onto channel shipping. And this is very bad news as well, because if you're going to take um, uh, troops out of Dunkirk, you want to go on the shortest route possible which is the Z route, which is only 39 miles. And that means scuttling down the coastline towards Graveline and cutting across to Dover that way. But you can't do that now, so that's taken that out of the equation. So that's not going to help things, because obviously a 39 mile is one thing, that's a quite a comparatively short trip, but 55 miles, which is uh, um, route X, which goes through a bunch of minefields and hasn't really been tested, that's a bit longer. And the only realistic op um, uh, option is Route Y, which tends you up further up the Belgian coast and then cuts across, and that's 87 miles. So that's more than double Route Z. And so obviously double means more time, which means it's going to take longer to get troops from Dunkirk and then back again to pick up the next load. So that's not a good sign. And the, the whole view is incredibly bleak. And what's happening at the moment is you've got these little um, battle groups, um, little kind of forces put together, holding kind of key points and desperately trying to hold, hold the Germans from attacking, from Cassel, Wormhoot, places like this, Harzebrook as well. Key places trying to stop the Germans from pushing forward and just hold them on as long as possible. And the plan is for the British to push in this way. They've talked to Blanchard about the First French Army, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to come back with us? And he says, no, our men are all tired. They're all exhausted. We've had it. We're, we're, we'll fight out, but, but, but you guys are on your own. And Lord Gort, who is the commander, General Lord Gort, VC, who is the commander of the BEF, shakes the hands of Blanchard and says, okay, good luck. See you in a little while. And they both know that, that this is it, that the French army is defeated and that their BEF is now pretty much on its own. And so the plan is to leave the French here, occupying the, the, the French First Army here, occupying the Germans as much as they possibly can, and the BF will kind of invert in and push in, and all the while the people closest to the, the coast will try and hold out as long as possible. Now one thing, of course, is, is helping them, which is the infamous halt order, which has been issued first on the 23rd, then reinforced on the 24th, and this is stopping the panzers from moving. And so the panzers of Army Group A are not operating on this day. So comparatively, although Calais has surrendered, it is a comparatively quiet day in terms of fighting. But there's also another warning, which is that the Belgians look like they're not going to hold out for much longer. And that means that whole front, which, has got the, which is being manned from Belgium, is suddenly going to have to be manned by the British, or else there's going to be a massive hole in, into which the Germans from Army Group B can push in. So it looks really, really bad. There's no way of getting around this. On the afternoon of the 26th, of Sunday the 26th of May, this national day of prayer, it is looking horrendously bad for the British. It's obviously looking horrendously bad for the French, but it's almost like they've come to terms with it. It's almost as though they've accepted the inevitable. And what you're getting with the British War Cabinet, what you're getting back at home, is this sense that, have we reached that point too? 
Have we reached that point where we are accepting that we're going to get defeated? Or can we still claw this back? Is there still a little bit of hope? And that's the bit that's in the balance. That day also you've got the Luftwaffe flying over. It's one of the heaviest attacks on Dunkirk that day. The oil depots get hit. Um, the whole port facilities get hit. Some 15,000 HE bombs and 30,000 incendiaries are dropped on Dunkirk and its environment on this one day. One of the people that's flying over is Siegfried Betker, who's operating from JG2. He's on his 40th mission that day, his 40th combat mission already. He is exhausted. And this is one thing that's really important to understand, is that the Luftwaffe are already at the kind of end of their tether. They're being really pushed because they're having to fly quite a long way from their bases to get to Dunkirk. It's not like they're in the Pas de Calais at this point. You know, that's later. That's down the line. That's a, they're moving up in, later in July, but they're not here yet. So they haven't got that much time over target. Um, and it's the same for the Stukas and the bombers as well. They've got quite a long way to go. And they're exhausted and they're flying, you know, Seafried Becker is just typical of the Luftwaffe fighter pilots at this time. He's flying kind of four or five sorties a day. Mentally and physically, that's absolutely exhausting. And yet Goering, the commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe, has boasted to Hitler that he doesn't need the panzers. He can destroy the British all on his own. His Luftwaffe can do this. The problem is, Sunday the 26th of May, the weather's not very good at all. In fact, actually, it's pretty much ten-tenths cloud. No wind whatsoever. And now the oil depots are on fire. And what does that produce? Loads and loads of smoke combined with very, very low cloud. So that gives the British trying to escape just the teeniest, teeniest glimmer of hope. But what on earth has been going on? How has it come to this? How has it come to this situation that mighty France, one of the leading industrial manufacturing um, nations in the world, the most automotive nation in Europe, has been crushed in such a short period of time. How is it that the BEF has kind of got its back to its wall and facing annihilation in northern France and Flanders? How can this be? Well, it's all to do with the sickle cut, this, this sickle cut, this plan that develops in the spring of 1940. Hitler wants to invade the West. His, the traditional plan is to go through the Low Countries because, of course, that's the easiest way to travel through. Then von Manstein comes up with this idea of going through the Ardennes, which is wooded and hilly and lots of rivers and is considered to be impossible to armoured troops. And he goes, no, of course it isn't. And the person who makes that possible really is Guderian. General Guderian, who is an armor expert, who's developing pioneering ideas about how you operate with armor. And it's really important to understand that a panzer division is not stuff full of panzers, tanks. It's an all-arms unit of reconnaissance vehicles, of motorized infantry, of motorized uh, anti-aircraft artillery, of motorized artillery, and of course tanks as well. And they're all working in tandem together. You know, we think of the Germans as being this kind of these automatons, this sort of Nazi war machine. We always talk about the war machine, don't we? But actually, they're not really. They're not very automotive at all. You know, there is eight uh, people for every vehicle in France. There is 14 people for every vehicle in Britain. There are 47 people for every vehicle in Germany, 106 in Italy, uh, despite having Fiat and Alfa Romeo, despite having BMW and, and Hawk and, and uh, Mercedes and what have you. You know, they're not actually very automotive. They're usually, most of their, uh, their, their troops are getting from A to B on horseback. These are the kind of pictures that they didn't show on the newsreels. Um, and, you know, the panzers, these panzer divisions, these are very much the core delete. This is the spearhead. The, the 135, um, 30, 135 divisions they're using for the invasion of the West, Case Yellow. Only 16 are motorized. You know, 10 are panzer divisions, uh, 6 are motorized infantry divisions. The rest are using horse and cart uh, and their own two feet. 
And when you look at the Panzers, you know, for the most part, they're pretty piddly. I mean, for those of you who've seen the Matilda 1, you know, out there, it's pretty small, it's pretty puny. Okay, they're a little bit bigger than that, but not by much, and certainly not the Panzer 1s or 2s. Um, and so that is the image that we're, we're used to, and sort of diving stukas and lots of, um, lots of tanks, but it's just the spearhead that's doing the damage. And the reason they're able to do the damage, of course, this is Guderian in his, in his command car, is because they've got radio communications. They really understand radio. And they are able to communicate very, very successfully. Each part of that panzer division, the infantry, the, the motorized infantry, the artillery, the reconnaissance troops, the panzers themselves, they're all able to communicate with each other really, really well. And the French just don't have an answer to this. You know, by contrast, they're incredibly ponderous. They're incredibly old, really. The command is incredibly old. The politics is incredibly fractured. You know, huge coalitions of multiple different parties which can't decide on absolutely anything. And of course, if your, politics, if your politicians can't decide, it's very hard for your military commanders to decide as well. This is Lord Gort in the middle uh, with Maurice Gamelan, who was 64 at the time, and I would argue just a little bit on the old side for what he's been given himself to do. Uh, his Chateau de Vincennes headquarters in just on the edge of Paris, he hasn't got a single radio. They're dependent on civilian telephone lines and dispatch riders. And what they haven't reckoned on is hordes and hordes of refugees clogging up the road. So you send off a, uh, off a dispatch rider and he can't get through. And, and you don't know back at headquarters whether he's got through or not. You're just waiting for him to turn up again. So you send another one off at 12 o'clock. And eventually he comes back at 9. And that then has to filter down through, you know, Overall headquarters, to army group headquarters, to army headquarters, to corps headquarters, to divisional headquarters, and it all just takes too long, it's just too top-heavy, and no one can make decisions except that they can't do it anymore and they're all too exhausted. And what happens is on the, on the, um, uh, on the 15th, of, um, 15th of May 1940, the cream of the French army, the 1st Armoured Division, is completely destroyed. It starts the day with 176 tanks, ends the day with 36. By the following day, there's just 16. And how can this be? Because the French have more tanks, they've got more artillery pieces, the tanks they've got are much bigger than the German tanks. How can this be? And yet it happens. And the reason it happens is because the little piddly panzers, and actually these are Rommel's um, and Holt's uh, 7th and 5th Panzer Division, which are mainly using captured Czech tanks, you know, T-35s and 38s. Uh, and what happens is they go towards the, uh, towards the lumbering Shah Bs and Samoas and literally do this. And the Charbys sort of go boom, 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 and start sort of coming towards them. And the Panzers then go beetle back, and waiting for these, these Charbys is a screen of anti-tank guns who blast them to pieces. And the reason they can do that is because the tanks can communicate to the artillery through radios, which the French don't have. And that's how they're destroyed. And they just don't have any answer to this. The whole plan, the whole French plan has gone to pot. And the BEF has moved forward into Belgium, alongside the Belgians, alongside the French, and the French and the Belgians either side of them have pulled back. So, of course, they've got to pull back too. It's not that they're doing anything particularly wrong. It's just that you can't be in, you can't just leave yourself out exposed. And so suddenly they're in this hideous situation by Sunday the 26th of May. It's looking like it's completely all over. Most of France, northern France and Belgium and Holland has already gone. Most of Belgium has gone. Most of northern France is, uh, is surrounded, and you've got this little lozenge, this pocket extending out from Dunkirk into northeast France, and that's all that's left. And will the panzers cut in behind, or will they be able to escape? That is the, the big, thunderous question on that Sunday, the 26th of May. 
And at the same time, dangerous splits are starting to emerge at the very top of the British government. Very worrying splits, which are only being exacerbated by the terrible fracture situation of French politics and French command over in France at the same time. And so we lead ourselves to Monday, the 27th of May, Black Monday. And, you know, on this day, Churchill is woken up at 7.15 in the morning to receive more bad news that yet more ships are being shelled at from the French coast around Gravelines. This is not a good start to the day at all. And, you know, London looks peaceful enough, but the first war cabinet is at 11.30 in the morning. And really, then that moment, they then cover uh, um, the details of uh, what has been going on the previous day, what it's looking like, worrying about the Belgians. And that question, that posing that, that Palifax has done about the Italians and this peace feelers is just left hanging for a little bit until later that afternoon at the second war cabinet meeting at 4.30 p.m. And this is where it all starts to turn pretty badly in terms of the war cabinet. Because Halifax raises again, says, well, what are we going to do? You know, what about Signor Bastianini? You know, it's hanging there. And he reads out his proposed letter that he's going to send to Mussolini. And it's pretty defeatist. It's pretty much saying, we know we're on the barrel. We know we're looking down the barrel. We know we're defeating. You know, what can we do? Is there kind of, you know, what can we exchange? Attending that meeting is Archibald Sinclair, who is uh, the leader of the Liberal Party. And he says, I'm not in favor of any approach at all. I can't see that there's any advantage of making an approach to the Italians at this particular point. He said, you know, our, 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 our morale is absolutely terrible. Our reputation in Europe is absolutely rock bottom. You know, if we start doing this behind the French's back, our, our ally at this stage, what message does that send? You know, how perfidious is that? We can't do this. And Churchill says, well, I absolutely agree. And Halifax says, well, of course, you know, if they, the terms aren't good, then of course we don't accept them. But I don't see the, the reason why in this particularly dire situation that we can't actually at least just see what those terms might be. And Churchill says, no, 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 you don't understand. You can't deal with someone like Hitler. And he says, you're assuming that Hitler's going to give us terrible terms, but he might not. And Churchill goes, of course he'll give us terrible terms. Um, he'll almost certainly give us terrible terms. And Halifax goes, almost certainly is not the same as certainly. I can't believe you're doing this. I can't work with you anymore. You know, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm that close to resigning. And the war cabinet breaks up, and Churchill takes Halifax out into the garden and puts a proverbial arm on his shoulder in the garden of number 10, the same scene, the same garden where, you know, Partygate was taking place. <laughs> but on that day, there wasn't a party, and there weren't lots of hangers-on and people having a business meeting. It was just, it was just Churchill and Halifax. And no one knows what they said. No one knows what they said. But somehow, Churchill managed to soothe him, saying, you know, my dear Edward, you're such a fine fellow, you know, I know this, I understand, but trust me, you know, I've seen these guys before, this is not the time, we've got to hold out a little bit more. There is another cabinet later on that night at 10 o'clock, but this time it's to discuss the news that the, the Belgians are about to surrender. Following morning, they will have surrendered. They'll be out of the line, and it's even more of a crisis. In the meantime, what has been going on? Well, at Dunkirk, it's time to operate, to start Operation Dynamo, which has been enacted at 6.57 p.m. on that Sunday, the 26th of, of May. 
Uh, and at about five o'clock that afternoon, a, um, a, a, a senior operations officer, uh, Captain Bill Tennant, who is 49 years old, is asked to report to the Admiralty, and he said, said get yourself down to Dover immediately and report to um, um, Ramsey. Um, he's got a very, very important job for you to do. And Bill Tennant turns up at Dover at about nine o'clock the following morning, and uh, he goes into the, uh, into the tunnels at Dover Castle, and um, he learns that Dynamo has been enacted at this point, uh, and, and the actual vote's been enacted at 6.57 the, the previous night. No one's actually been lifted at this point. And Ramsey says, I'm in charge of Operation Dynamo. I may only be kind of, you know, in charge of, I may be only a vice admiral, and this is Ramsey, by the way. Uh, I may only be a vice admiral, and I may be kind of um, operating um, um, uh, just in command of, of Dover, but I am in charge of Dynamo, and I want you to go over there and organize things on the beaches. I need an experienced man with a clear head. And Tennant says, well, you know, what's the situation? And Ramsey says, well, I've got to say, it's incredibly bleak. I mean, I think if we can get 40,000 men away, we'll be doing quite well. This looks an incredibly dire situation. No one is expecting Dunkirk to hold for more than, you know, 24, 36 hours tops, that kind of level. And, um, um, you know, it is a very, very, very bad situation. And we've got these three routes, um, Z, X, and Y, and we can only realistically now use Y, which is obviously going to take things a lot longer. So at 1.45, he leaves on HMS Wolfhound, a destroyer, and heads over to, um, over to Dunkirk. And getting there at about 5.35 p.m., there is HMS Wolfhound, siving through the seas. And he gets there, and when he gets there, he sees an absolute, an almost up a pocket, you know, apocalyptic kind of view. You know, Dunkirk is just these huge, I mean, look at that smoke. I mean, this is rising kind of 10, 12,000 feet into the sky. There's also a kind of a, a, a broad cloud bank. And although it looks really awful, again, this is actually gives the British a tiny, tiny, tiny glimmer of hope because, of course, what can the air forces do? But the problem is, of course, is that there's land forces and they're going to be homing in any minute now. There's panzers just off at Graveline, which is just down the road. It's all looking incredibly bleak. When he gets to Dunkirk, he pulls in. He gets in, he reports to... Uh, um, um, Admiral Abril, uh, Bastion 32, and Abril is the French commander of Dunkirk, the naval commander. Uh, and, and all around Dunkirk, he sees smashed houses, burnt houses, uh, um, um, telegraph wires on the floor, on the ground. You know, it's, it's just a scene of, of, of abject kind of destruction. You know, we've all seen those scenes now, haven't we, really, of, of towns in, in Ukraine. So we, we're familiar what it looks like. Burnt out vehicles, telegraph wires toppled, shattered glass, dead bodies. Uh, it's an absolute scene. And when he looks down the beaches at Marleau-le-Bain and then um, all the way down to kind of Le Pan, um, all he can see is tens of thousands of British troops milling around on this beach and little boats and ships offshore, little lighters and ships offshore. And he just thinks, this is absolutely hopeless. How are we going to do anything with this? And that same day, things are tightening in because the halt order has been lifted the previous afternoon at 12.30 p.m. That only reaches von Kleist's group of panzers in the evening at about 8.30, and so they're on the go again the following morning at, um, uh, on the 20, so Monday, the 27th of May. And this is... These are guys from the Totenkopf. They're in a bad mood. They had already got across the Basse Canal on the 24th. They were then ordered back again, having had a pretty stiff fight. They're very grumpy. Uh, um, they capture a whole load of, uh, of British troops, 99 of them, take them to a barn in the afternoon, line them up and shoot them all. Uh, and only two managed to escape, albeit both wounded. 
Um, it's a really, really dark moment. Uh, uh, second Norfolk's, uh, and it re reminder that this is uh, this is turning into a pretty brutal fight. You know, these guys are Waffen SS, they're, and, and they're setting down a marker for the kind of frankly the rest of the war. So that's not good either. Um, and the fighting is incredibly vicious. Later on that afternoon, the third Grenadier Guards are um, retreating back. They've just marched 20 miles, and they've been told to get to get themselves to um, to Dunkirk. And they're around here uh, uh, in this sort of Hootem area between Hootem and Comine. And they're, wait, they're resting at, uh, at Plug Street, at Plug Street uh, Wood, uh, famous or infamous in which way you look at it from the First World War. And um, Alan Adair, who is the acting, Major Alan Adair, who is the acting commander of the Third Grenadiers, is resting when suddenly an ADC turns up and it's Lieutenant George Thorne. And he goes, how wonderful to see the son of my former commanding officer at Passchendaele. And of course, it's exactly the same neck of the woods as well. You know, it's still the same Eep area. And George Fawn says, well, you know, lovely to see you, sir, as well. Um, but I've got really bad news. I'm afraid, um, actually, rather than getting to Dunkirk and escaping back to England, we really need you to do a job for us. Um, Major General Alexander has ordered me to, to tell you that he needs you to counterattack against the German positions across the Eep Kameen Canal, which is this one here this evening and push them back. We've got to hold off the Germans as much as possible. And the whole point about the counterattack is getting back across the, the Ypres-Kameen Canal, which is a natural obstacle, which is then easier to defend, push them back, and then that's leaving that corridor open. This is on the northern side of that lozenge-shaped corridor that I was telling you about. So off they set, and it is Captain uh, Roderick um, Brickman who is leading the attack. And within two minutes, two of his platoon commanders have been killed. He then gets hit by a mortar fragment in his left eye, and his head is absolutely bleeding, but he thinks, cripes, you know, I've just got to kind of push on a little bit. So he then tells his men to charge on towards the, uh, uh, push on towards the, uh, towards the canal. Lots of fire going on, machine guns, you know, you can imagine it, mortars firing, everything, absolute mayhem. He then gets hit again in the right shoulder and then in the left elbow. So suddenly he's been wounded three times. And he thinks, gosh, okay, well, I've still got to carry on. And they see this little kind of cottage by the canal, by a lock system, and the Germans are firing from there. So with his good arm, he manages to hurl in four grenades before being hit again in the thigh and then in the back of the leg, at which point he faints. And then when he comes to, he's thinking, I've got my tie. Which wound should I use as a tourniquet? <laughs> um, and at that point, the Germans type up and capture him. But the amazing thing is Alan Adair has seen all this battle going on and orders his men to pull back a little bit from the canal and then dig in. And actually, I've been to that area, and it's very interesting. You can see exactly where they might dig in. A bit like around here, there's lots of sort of hedgerows and stuff, and it's, it's not completely flat there. It is very, very softly undulating. And they dig in there, and he says, right, whatever happens, hold on. Just hold on. We've got to just hold this line. And they dig in, and they manage to hold off the, um, the Germans until the following day. Late on the following evening is when they finally pull back to um, Dunkirk on the late on the evening of the 28th of May. By that time, there's just 270 men left in the battalion. So, you know, uh, one of these sacrificial acts, and it, but it's just, just a fascinating one. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. That first day, 7,669 men have been lifted from the beaches. It is not a good start. And it makes the kind of the 40,000 figure that Ramsey was talking about look actually a little bit optimistic, if we're brutally honest. And that night in uh, his diary, Chamberlain writes, the blackest day of all, Monday the 27th of May. Cabinet fatally split. Things looking really bad. The Panzer's on the move again. Only 7,669 men um, recovered. It looked about as bleak as it possibly could be. Had it looked bleak on the Sunday, you can ratchet that up by about three times on the night of the 27th. And even after that last war cabinet, Churchill is feeling so sick he can't even eat. He's feeling sick with worry. So here we are on Tuesday the 28th of May. What's going to happen? What, what will this day bring? Well, the RAF are over, fighter command, they might only have 490 planes left, but they're still fighting, they're flying over uh, um, squadrons. Now, a debate has raged, you know, do you put over constant standing patrols, which means you can only operate in, in kind of VIX of, say, three planes, just as was depicted um, at very low levels in the film Dunkirk, or do you do something much more sensible, which is to send over strength, two squadrons at a time, 24 fighter planes, who can operate in tandem some of the time. And that is the option that Keith Park, who is the commander of of, uh, 11 Group in southeast England, and which is supported by Dowding, the commander-in-chief of Fighter Command, goes for. Thinks this is the way to go. And so um, one of those who are flying over that day is is John Dundas on the left here, who is with um, 609 Squadron, West Riding Auxiliary Squadron, uh, and also his younger brother, Hugh Cocky Dundas. And Cocky is on the the right-hand side there. And he's in 616 Squadron. He wants to, absolutely adores his older brother, wants to be like him, um, wants to be in 609 Squadron. There's no space for him, but he's in 616. They're based at Leckenfield up, in, the, up in, in Yorkshire. They're moved down, and he flies over Dunkirk for the first time. 
And as he flies over, he just thinks, oh my God. You know, he's 19 years old. He's very, very fresh face. All he can see is this huge plume of smoke rising up into the sky. And within moments of being there, they're attacked. They're pounced on by Messerschmitts. He manages to duck out the way, but he's just absolutely terrified, that first sortie. Then he's back there later on that afternoon, on the, on the uh, Tuesday, the 28th of May. Uh, and he's sort of got his hand in a little bit, his eye in a little bit. Um, he fires off and squirts off at, a, at an ME110 uh, um, twin engine plane and manages again to kind of escape the fray okay but lots of people are not you know um, 20 people 20 fighter planes shot down on Sunday the 26th uh, um, 30 shot down on Monday the 27th 25 shot down on Tuesday the 28th of May you know these are all critical numbers when you've only got kind of you know on on the 26th of May you've only got 491 fighter planes left you know this is not good um, so these are really really critical losses yeah, and here's a kind of depiction of it. I love this. I mean, this is painting by my good friend Keith Burns, but it's very evocative, I think, of, of the kind of sort of situation, the smoke, the mayhem, um, and obviously a little bit higher in the sky than depicted in the film Dunkirk, which is obviously quite accurate. <laughs> More of which later. And this is the situation on, on Monday the 28th, and you can see, can't you, that, that, that it's closing in. There's First Army here, gone. You know, that's surrounded now out out of the picture and suddenly you and you can see the British kind of pulling in here and you've got these little holding points Harzebrook where Al's grandfather was fighting and where he was killed Cassell you know holding out since the 26th of of May fighting on the all through the 27th when the Panzers are on the move again all through the 28th as well holding out um, you know it's a really really amazing effort and it's not until later that night that they kind of start pulling out. And in the meantime, there's another line. There's the Isa line. There's the river here and the, the river Lees. They have, they've kind of worked out what the perimeter is going to be around Dunkirk, a defensive perimeter. But at this point, the Germans aren't attacking that. They're still attacking this lozenge, pushing in from the, kind of, from the east, from the west, and, and all around. And it's kind of who can, who can get away at this point. But there is hope because on this day, on the 28th of May, um, um, what happens is... Uh, 17,804 men are taken, are, are lifted, which is still not enough, but it's a massive improvement. It's kind of stepping into the right kind of direction. But there's also great things going on on that Tuesday in Parliament as well and um, in the War Cabinet. And this whole issue with Halifax has not really resolved itself. But what's really interesting is first thing in the morning, Churchill is, knows he needs to get the support of Chamberlain. This is key to the whole thing. You know, because Greenwood and Attlee, they're the new guys, they're in Labour, they don't really count. You know, these are the guys, that, the, the three that are going to decide the fate of Britain are Halifax, the most respected politician in Britain, former Viceroy of India, been on a politic, political scene for absolute ages, seen as a kind of, you know, absolute sound judgment, sensible person, you know, hugely respected, you can count on him. Chamberlain, hugely experienced, of course, ousted, you know, potentially a bit raw from that experience. Well, he is very raw. He's already suffering from the cancer that's going to kill him later on that year. Hasn't been diagnosed yet, but he's not a well man. And Churchill has been really trying hard to kind of woo Chamberlain, saying, don't, don't leave number 10. You, you just stay there as long as you want. And, you know, I'm so grateful that you're going to be in my cabinet. You're such a marvellous chap, Neville. And, and Neville is kind of, Chamberlain is kind of soothed by this. But there's this wonderful opening for Churchill, as he absolutely leaps on on the morning of the 28th of May. And this is that Lloyd George has asked him whether he can join the cabinet, the war cabinet. 
And Lloyd George, former prime minister during the First World War, but a Nazi sympathizer in many ways, uh, um, a defeatist, and really him and Chamberlain hate each other's guts. And Churchill says to Chamberlain, Neville, there's something I want to broach you. Lloyd George has asked me um, if he can be in the war cabinet. I just kind of wonder what, what you think about that. And, um, you know, I'd love your opinion. And, uh, and Chamberlain says, well, obviously, if you want, want Lloyd George, that's absolutely fine. I will completely respect that. But I wouldn't be able to serve in the same, government, uh, same cabinet as him. I would be f compelled to resign. But, but, you know, I wouldn't hold it against you. And that's, you know, whatever you decide is fine, Winston. And Churchill pats him on the knee and says, Neville, you know, I, I, no way at this moment I would ever want to lose such a brilliant person as you. There's no way. I, do you know what? I'm just going to tell uh, Lloyd George to foxtrot Oscar. Um, <laughs> you stay where you are. And Chamberlain goes, thanks, Winston. And that morning, they have this discussion again about, you know, do they go to Bastianini? Do they do, they do the whole kind of, you know, following the peace things? And at this point, Chamberlain says, I've been thinking about this. I, I, I think this is a mistake. I think actually we've got a, a quite a lot in our strength. I think it would look weak. I think it would be a bad thing to do. I don't think we should do it. That afternoon, Churchill then addresses the House and says, of course we're not going to surrender. Of course we're not going to do anything like this. You know, we've got to carry on. And the whole House is just, no one demurs. No one says, no, of course we should, so we, you know, we should throw in the towel. Everyone is, sort of seems behind him. And emboldened by this, that evening, Churchill holds a wider cabinet meeting of 25 men. And he says, we must go on. We must fight it out. And if our Long Island story is to come to an end, then it is better that we come to an end, not through surrender, but with us lying senseless on the ground. And everyone goes, hooray, we're all behind you, Winston. And that, in a trice, is Halifax absolutely kicked into touch. It's all over. That whole kind of Bastianini skit, the whole kind of peace-feeling thing, never mentioned again. Churchill's power is massively enhanced by this spat with Halifax in which he has won resoundingly the argument with the support of Chamberlain. Halifax's great friend, the humiliated former prime minister. It is just, I, I cannot stress enough what, a, what an amazing moment that is and what a massively significant moment that is. And people often ask me, you know, was there a point where Britain ever got close to losing the war? And I say, yes, on Monday the 27th and Tuesday the 28th of, of May, 1940, that was the closest we came to war. It was all looking really, really bleak. And that same night over in the continent, there is more good news because Montgomery, Major General Bernard Montgomery with his 3rd Division, has managed to move 45 miles behind the British lines and fill the gap vacated by the Belgians. It's an astonishing operation. And of course, his corps commander is Alan Brooke at the time. Soon to be, in a, in a year or so, he's going to be the Chief of the Imperial General Staff. And what he recognizes is that someone who is no-nonsense and who is operationally incredibly sound. Uh, and so this is another really, really big moment. And what that means is by Tuesday, the 29th of May, from that point of view, things are looking a little bit better, but they're also looking a little bit better at Dunkirk as well, because late on that Monday night, when Tennant is around, and after he's got over the shock of this apocalyptic scene in Dunkirk that he's seen, he notices there is these two moles these kind of rough, loose breakwaters, concrete lattice breakwaters with a, with a wooden platform, not very wide, only about this wide, you know, two yards wide, something like that. 
that extends either side, east and west, 1,600 yards, nigh on a mile, between three quarters and a mile long, out into the sea. And he suddenly thinks, ah, oh, I wonder, could someone actually, could a ship actually be brought up against this? Obviously, it's not a quayside, but could it hold? Could it possibly hold a ship? So he signals late on the night of the 27th to HMS Wolfhound, his ship that he's come over early on that day, and says, could you just come in and see where, could you send in a ship and see whether it, it, it can moor alongside? So he sends in, so Wolfhound sends in Queen of the Channel, a cross-channel steamer, and it nudges up against the concrete, and there's a little bit of like that, a creaking of the, of the pile, of the concrete pile and of the, of the wooden floorboards. But it manages it. And they get 904 men out, and out it steams, uh, back to England. Except it doesn't, because it gets sunk. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't, it does matter. Unfortunately, it doesn't get sunk very quickly. So all 904 men are picked up, and they, they skittle off to, Dunker, uh, off to Dover, and that's fine. Um, so it's all fine. Uh, um, it's not fine for the Queen of the Channel, of course, but, but it's fine for everybody else. So that's good. And the next ship goes out at 4.45 a.m., and the next ship goes out at 9.15 a.m., and now, Tennant goes, order all the ships across. You know, we can now, uh, um, we can now send them from the, from the mole. Don't worry about the, uh, the beaches anymore. I mean, obviously, we're going to still pick people up the beaches, but the majority need to get themselves up to mole le and they need to get on this mole, and we'll kind of ferry them on there, and we're going to get ships in two a, two a time. And the great thing is, of course, is it's closer to the port, which is closer to the burning oil refineries, which means it's harder for the Luftwaffe to, to, uh, um, to spot and to dive bomb on. So that is very much good news. And so by the 29th of May, things are starting to look just the teeniest bit better, a little bit more of a glimmer of hope. But of course, as the BEF comes in, it's thousands, tens of thousands of vehicles all have to be abandoned. They can't take those back across. They've got to abandon them. So they're chucking grain and dust into the, into the engines, trying to de destroy them as much as they possibly can. Don't want to set them on fire because that might attract the Germans. But you do want to destroy them, knock them out, and then push them in. One of the guys that arrives on the 29th is Sid Nuttall of the R um, Royal Army um, uh, Service Corps, RASC who has been attached to the first borderers. He's been told, here's a rifle, you're now a rifleman. You're no longer in the, uh, in the, in the service corps. Uh, and it's absolute mayhem. When he gets to Dunkirk, he gets to the beaches, he sees the mayhem in the town, he sees lots of people drunk because there's no water, Every, the water's been switched off, electricity's off, glasses everywhere, everyone's breaking into the bars to get a drink because that's the only kind of, uh, the only thing they can get to quench their thirst. Of course, alcohol's not a great thirst quencher really, apart from a really nice lager at the end of a long journey across the Western Desert in the Cecil Hotel. <laughs> but apart from that, it's generally not the ideal thing. So they get into, so, so, that, so he's there and, and it's just mayhem. And there's people floundering around in the sea, but the sea is flat as a board. Again, another problem with that Dunkirk film, but I'm kind of jumping the gun for tonight a little bit. Um, and this is what's happening. This is now full on withdrawal to the coast. The people from that night are going to abandon Cassell. Uh, um, that night as well, the 28th, 29th, that's when um, Alan Adair and his grenadiers, his 270 men left, are kind of finally pulling back. And you can see them kind of sort of pulling in. There is first, there is the, the River Lees line, and then there is the Isa line. And all the time there are people being pushed into this, into this um, to defend this perimeter, which goes along the uh, um, Berg Fern Canal. 
Uh, and this canal is, well, it's probably about the width of this stage, so what's that about, about kind of, you know, 15 yards wide, something like that. But it's, but it's significant enough, it's got, a, it's got deep sides, you know, no tank is going to get across it. And of course, this is very, very flat land, and there's been lots of rain, and it's very waterlogged. So although the panzers are now on the, on the go, actually, they can't really maneuver through here. This is German artillery and infantry moving forward. And infantry moving forward to attack against a well-devented position, which has got a whopping great canal in front of it, that's actually quite hard. And the consequence of this is that on this day, this third proper day of the, of the um, evacuation, a whopping 48,810 people are evacuated. And that's suddenly a bit more like it because that's suddenly that's over the estimate. And the, the perimeter is still holding. That kind of apocalyptic vision of kind of, you know, we might be able to hold 24 hours, 36 hours, the panzers are coming. That hasn't become reality. The panzers can't come because they're stuck. It's too waterlogged, this flat land, right by, by, um, uh, by, by Dunkirk. And when you wander around that countryside and you actually go down to the canal line today, you can completely see why that would be the case. It's just too sticky for these tanks. It's, ar it's artillery and infantry that are going to do it. Not the Luftwaffe, who haven't been hitting things anything like the level of accuracy that, that, um, that Goering has um, boasted. And these are the scenes in Dunkirk. I mean, look at it. It's an absolute mess, burnt out vehicles, rubbish on the ground. You know, it's a, it's a terrible scene. And of course, you know, little boats are starting to come out. The order goes out, um, I think on the 29th by Ramsey saying, you know, I want little ships to come and help. You know, the big problem that the government have is what do you do? You know, do you announce what's going on and get everyone in even more of a panic? Or do you try and keep it secret? And Churchill has always said, I want to be really open as a government, but not on this occasion. You know, I want to be quite secret about this one. And so all those people who answer Ramsey's call about going out the Admiralty's call to go over and help, they're told, whatever you do, don't explain why. You're just, you're just off. You know, say goodbye to your wife, say you're just going off on a little jaunt and you see you tomorrow. Uh, and, and it really is like that. But the bulk of the work is being done by the destroyers and a handful of merchant vessels. Um, Britain has a, a 10,000 strong merchant vessel fleet. Only about 40 can be spared. Uh, I think 39 actually can be spared at this moment for the evacuation because they're just in the wrong place. They're beetling all around the world, of course, you know, moving stuff. So that's all there is. And, and some 41 destroyers, loads of naval lighters, mine layers, and so on, and other ships all kind of hurtling towards Dunkirk as much as they possibly can. Um, and lining up against the mole, but also picking up from the beaches. But you have to understand that from the beaches, what you're, what you're doing, those little ships, all they're doing is they are picking up people and taking them to the ships that are offshore. But you don't want that many offshore. You want them on the mole. And that's why on this next day, it's 58,823 men are evacuated. And most of those are coming from the mole. And suddenly it's all starting to look a little bit better. But, you know, these are still very, very uh, um, apocalyptic scenes. It, you can see this is, uh, um, uh, again, from a ship looking at the beaches. You can see how bad it is. You can see the, the shells exploding. You can get this sense, can't you, that there's 10 tenth cloud. Again, this is very good. Uh, um, but, of course, the problem is the guys on the ground, they're thinking, where the hell's the RAF? Well, the RAF is at 20,000 feet fighting Messerschmitts and, and shooting down Stukas as they're coming in to dive and, and Junkers 88s and Heinkels and so on. Um, but you can't see them because the, the cloud ba base is really, really low. So it looks like the guys on the ground, that there aren't any RAF at all, but they are. They're still battling incredibly hard. And it has to be said, pretty successfully, even though they're still suffering their own losses as well. Um, 33 shot down on, on the 29th of May.
You know, that means 108 planes have been shot down in four days. But in that same time, the Luftwaffe, who have been absolutely working round the clock pretty much since the 10th of May, have lost 118 planes and 191 aircrew. And these are big, big losses in the circumstances. So we get to Thursday, um, the 30th of May. All is calm back in England. And again, the cabinet are sort of thinking, oh, thank God we didn't go to send your Bastianini. Edward, you really got that one wrong, didn't you? And everyone's sort of slightly looking at him a bit like a pariah in the war cabinet. No one's sort of mentioning it's a bit kind of elephant in the room, but everyone's starting to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. And this day, a whole load more get, get taken out. I mean, on the 30th of May, it's, uh, um, it's some 68,000. So it's, it's a huge number that get picked up. And what you're getting now by this stage it is now the battle of the perimeter. All those who are inland, you know, the, the defenders, the Oxen Bucks at, at, at Cassel and Harzebrook, for example, if they haven't managed to get, they've been overrun. So some, are, a handful are managing to get through the German lines, um, but, but most are captured. If they're not captured, they're kind of hurrying back as well. But basically, the fight that's going on now is the perimeter. This is the perimeter fight. But it's taken all this time. It's all the way to Thursday, the 30th of May that the perimeter fight starts. And what you've got over here at Neuport is the second Royal Fusiliers. And uh, a chap I was lucky to get to know is a chap called Norman Field. You can see the landscape here. Again, you can see how with all that rain, this would be pretty tricky for tanks. Really, really dead flat. Incredibly difficult for the infantry to advance over. The Germans to attack. Very comparatively easy to, uh, to defend. But you've only got 16 battalions, British battalions. And the French battalions are uh, French are covering the, uh, um, the Dunkirk side of things. And the British are, are, are on the kind of the eastern side of things. And um, Norman Field here, he's in the Royal, second Royal Fusiliers. And they're absolutely exhausted. They've been on the go ever since the 10th of May, moving up into Belgium, then coming back down again. Now they're having to defend that this, uh, the furthest eastern part of the perimeter. They're manning a, an old German blockhouse from the First World War. And... At one point, they're so exhausted that their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Allen, who is the brother of the England cricketer, Gubby Allen, in a kind of sleep-like trance, goes, come on, men, follow me, and probably gets hit with a bullet straight through the head. And so he's dead. And they're all feeling really, really low. And then suddenly, uh, Major Malcolm Blair turns up, and everyone's absolutely thrilled about this. It really, because he is the most popular person in the battalion, and he'd come separated, and they were really worried about him. And what happened was he got onto a ship, and then someone said, Oh, no, the Fusiliers are down at Neuport. So he got off the ship again and went back to join his men. And everyone just got this, Oh, thank God you're here, Malcolm. You know, and Norman particularly was absolutely pleased as punch about this. But the following morning on the 30th, a shell came in, um, 31st rather, a shell came in, hit the blockhouse, and um, uh, Norman Field had been away at that time with just a little, you know, 30 yards down the line. Uh, and when he came back, he said, what's happened? They said, we've got terrible news. Uh, uh, Malcolm Blair's been killed. So he could have escaped. And he came back to be with his mates, to be with his men, uh, and was promptly killed. And Norman Fields said to me, I had a tear in my eye when I learned that news that Malcolm had gone. You know, so it was all these kind of little personal tragedies going on at the same time. But on that day, you know, that is, it's, it's, um, it's 68,000 men uh, um, uh, pulled up, you know, lifted on that day. So a huge, huge number. And things again are looking up. Uh, on, on Friday the 31st, again, the Stukas are down, the Luftwaffe are down, furious air battles, but they're not making much headway. And the interesting thing is actually for all the people that are talking about kind of, you know, I got in my destroyer and I saw the Stukas came down. It was like, you know, heaven, hell's banshees descending on us and there were huge fountains of spray and all the rest of it, but hardly any ships got sunk at all. 
Um, some of them got hit by blast, as, um, as um, uh, our good friend Andy Saunders was telling Al and I the other day. But, but even so, not many ships sunk, actually, in the big scheme of things, once they get out into the channel. Uh, and most of them are getting away. And this, of course, is because a Stuka is compar it's comparatively easy to hit a, hit a target when it's a nice big fat factory or a, or, or a marshalling yard or something which is big and solid and doesn't move. But when you're looking at a, at a, at a destroyer, you know, from, from 11,000 feet when you're starting your 80-degree dive, it looks like a tiny little pencil and it's moving around all over the place. And it's, you've got literally 0.1 second to kind of make a decision and get it right. And that's incredibly hard to aim, which is why most of them miss. Thank goodness. Lots of scenes of chaos still on the beaches and everything, but they're starting to kind of pull back. And on that 31st, what they do is they decide to, uh, they're still holding the perimeter line. There's, there's some great actions uh, on that Saturday as well, um, but they're starting to move back. You can see they're abandoning it. Um, remember the Fusiliers were here at Neuport. They pull back, uh, furiously trying to get to, get to the beaches. The perimeter is closing up. It's all looking pretty desperate. They're nearing the end now, but you know, these are big, Big numbers that are now being lifted. And a further 64,429 uh, are lifted on this Saturday the 1st. You know, that's a, that's a huge number. It's not as many as the day before, but, you know, it's not the 68,000, but it's, it's, it's a pretty big number. And suddenly it's looking really pretty good. And it's looking like there's a chance they might get the whole lot. But on this Saturday, the weather starts to clear. Um, and um, so much so that suddenly... You have the, the oil cloud has dispersed, the cloud is starting to disperse, and of course that makes it much easier for the Luftwaffe to hit. Um, and so in the afternoon, uh, um, Tennant and uh, General Alexander, who has now taken over from Lord Gort, who's gone back to England, um, has been ordered back to England, and Alexander is now in charge, decide that they're going to abandon daylight um, evacuations. They're going to restart again at 9 o'clock that night. But in the meantime, the last furious bits of fighting are, are going on, and this is Irvin Andrews, um, a commander of the um, East Lancashire's, and he's on a, in a farmhouse overlooking the, uh, um, the Bergfern um, Canal. Uh, and the Germans are coming towards him. Uh, and he's up there with his rifle. He personally accounts for 17 Germans, most of whom are officers, um, um, sniped with his rifle and also shot, shoots a whole load more with his Bren gun. Um, and he actually wins a VC for this particular action. But it's kind of typical of the furious fighting that's going on. You know, this is just a handful, a skeleton force that are holding out on the other side of the, of the, um, of the, of the canal, on the kind of, you know, coastward side of the canal, just to allow those ships to keep going out. And they do. Uh, and on this day, um, a further kind of um, um, 54,000 men are, are evacuated. And so we come to the last day of the British evacuation, Sunday the 2nd of June. Uh, and there is Alexander, one of my great, great heroes, absolutely imperturbable, which is one of the reasons why he's appointed in Gort's place. Um, he has his hands full with um, Admiral Abriel, but he manages to kind of convince him um, uh, of how things are going to happen. He has a right to invoke a veto over any orders that Abriel gives him, because Abriel is the senior commander, uh, which he invokes almost immediately. Um, and so basically does things his way, which is to allow, at this point, over the weekend of the 1st and 2nd of June, to allow um, a 50-50 um, uh, um, evacuation of British and French troops because the French are by this point actually the French troops that are in the town are holding it very very valiantly you know credit where credit's due uh, uh, and they really are helping things but they think actually do you know what this is going to be the last day Sunday is going to be the last day again they suspend 
um, um, uh, evacuations during the day. Everyone just has to keep their head down. For those last 5,000 British troops that are left, just 5,000 and around 20,000, 30,000 French troops there, you know, this is it. Uh, um, we're just going to hold out until nine o'clock that night and then we'll, have, we'll start the evacuation again. And so it happens. And that day they managed to um, evacuate the last 24,409 um, uh, uh, troops which are lifted on that day, Sunday the 2nd of June. And at 11.30, uh, um, they're all heading back to England, at 11.30 that night, Bill Tennant and General Alexander take a motor launch and they go down the whole length of the evacuation beaches with Al's megaphone. And they go, anyone still there? Any British troops? Any British troops? Shout now. And no one does. They've lifted absolutely everyone. The only people that have been left behind are those too badly uh, who cut the, you know, walking wounded fine. If you're not walking wounded and you're in hospitals, you stay behind. You're going to end up in the bag if you can recover. Um, but everyone else, everyone who can walk, the walking wounded and the fit, are every single man is lifted. And at 11.30 that night, they return and Bill Tennant makes his signal to Admiral Ramsey and he says four words, BEF evacuated and returning. Wow, what a week. I mean, it's just amazing. And, you know, there obviously there is the, the, the miracle of the evacuation, the miracle of Dunkirk. You know, what follows is... is the Germans managed to half-inch all the abandoned British equipment, which then sees action on the Eastern Front the following summer. But as we know, Britain is saved. You know, the, the political machinations have gone. Uh, the army hasn't been completely destroyed. There is a skeleton force from which it can be reborn again. Britain is at point zero. But now the Germans have decided to, uh, they're going to, going to um, finish off France first. That gives um, Britain's rapidly in, um, improving and speeding up aircraft production the chance to kind of build more Spitfires um, and Hurricanes, so much so that 496 um, single-engine fighters are built in July 1940 alone, and I think it's about 440 are built in June 1940. So these are really, really decent numbers and obviously making good the losses. And what that means is on the 10th of July, when the Battle of Britain officially starts, um, Fighter Command is back to about kind of 650 single-engine fighters, uh, which is a whole load more healthy. And of course, the Germans can't just sort of move everything up in a, in a, in a, in a trice, which is why Eagle Day doesn't start until the 13th of August 1940. So, you know, a whole kind of two and a half months later. Uh, and it is, you know, the end of that week, what's happened? You know, the, the, the kind of absolute doom that was facing them the previous Sunday, by the following Sunday, it's like, whew. We've got through it. We've got away with it. We've got our guys back. We've got another chance. And actually, let's just think about it here. We've still got the world's largest navy. You know, uh, uh, we can get access all around the world with Duke forces. You know, we've got the Dominions. We've got the Empire. You know, it's not all bad. We've got the Canadians. You know, we've got, we've got the Australians. We've got the New Zealanders. We've got the South Africans. We've got the, the Rhodesians as they were then. We've got the Indians. You know, we've got 500 million people that we can call upon to help us in this battle. You know, it's not all doom and gloom. At least the Americans are friendly at the moment. At least they're supplying us with rifles and potentially some destroyers a little bit further down the line. You know, this all kind of the runes are looking a little bit better. You know, and it's very hard to cross the, uh, cross the channel, as Churchill says. You know, Hitler knows he must, he must take this island or lose the war. And you know what? He's bang on. He's absolutely right. You know, so is this just this incredible story? And I don't know about you, but can you think of a... Uh, um, of a better, um, a better week in British history, a more dramatic week in British history. I mean, for me, it is just, 
It's just the tops. It's got it all. It's, it's so dramatic. There's so much going on. The fate, and not just of Britain, but the free world, hangs in the balance on one Sunday. And by the following Sunday, whew, we've kind of made it. We've got another chance. We might actually come out of this okay, guys. You know, it's such an amazing thing. But as this oil-stained corpse reminds us, you know, 70,000 men left behind, 64,000 vehicles left behind, you know, it's not great. And as, as Churchill points out, you know, victories are not made from evacuations. So we have to kind of put this in perspective. But the other big thing is that his power, his authority is massively um, um, enhanced by this whole week. He has come out triumphant. He has won his own battle, his own political battle, which is, I would argue, every bit as important as the battle that has been raging on the other side of the English Channel. Thank you.